Today we're talking about a topic that uh, could be viewed uh, differently. Uh, you know, sometimes I think that uh, we can, you know, as a church member and then a pastor, we, we can see things differently. And I have the advantage of sitting on both sides of the aisle. So uh, I want to start by saying today we're going to talk about your work and your job and your vocation. And in fairness, I have a full-time job and I work uh, every day during the week. Uh, so I know exactly what it's like to work all week during the week and come to church on Sunday and Wednesday. And I know exactly what that's like. So uh, I just want to say that, you know, this is not me telling you what to do and then saying, now go do it, but I'm not doing that. I'm doing the exact same thing you are. So I'm working every day, all day uh, during the week. And so as we talk about our vocation, I want us to have a conversation today uh, about what that looks like. So we're in the resilience series. We're at the end. We're at number five. And uh, as we've talked during the, uh, the last several weeks, we've talked about the different things that make uh, a resilient Christian resilient. What are the characteristics of that person, and uh, how do they end up being the 10%, right? The 10%, you know, we don't want to be the 38%, we don't want to be the 22%, the prodigals and the habitual churchgoers, we want to be the resilient. That's what God's called us to be. And, uh, and so we want to talk about that today. And so the fifth one, as you can already see on your handout, today is about vocational discipleship. So let's pray and ask God to be with us this morning during our time, and uh, then we'll get started. God, we bow before your throne this morning, and God, we gratefully declare, we confidently declare that your word has been spoken, and it is so. And for that reason, we stand this morning before your word, believing with the conviction of everything that we are, that every single word of these 66 books are absolutely true. And they're just as relevant today as the day they were spoken. And so, Lord, today, would you give us ears to hear? God, would you help us to see things the way that you want us to see things? Because as we have already sung, God, you're a good father. And God, you know what we need just when we need it. And so today, would you use these words to encourage us? Would you use these words to convict us? God, would you use these words to change us to be who you want us to be? In Jesus' name, amen. We're on 1,027, 1,027 in the Pew Bible in front of you, 1,027. If you have small letters in your Bible, it's probably not 1,027, uh, but we'll be in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel chapter 6, we'll be using some scripture from various places today, but Daniel chapter 6 is where we will uh, land for the core part of our conversation today. Daniel chapter 6, 1,027. So let me ask you a question this morning. Remember as a child when you would imagine what you would be when you grew up? Remember those thoughts? What, what were those things? What, what, what was it that you wanted to be when you, when you grew up? You dreamed, you you had all these imaginations of who you would be and what you would do and the places you would go. What, what, what are some thoughts? Somebody speak up. What, what is something that you dreamed that you would be when you were little? A nurse? A mother? A rock star on the front row. All right. Professional football player? Teacher? All right. Psychologist? 
missionary. You know, oftentimes as a kid, you, uh, you have these uh, fancy imaginations of one day I want to be an astronaut. One day I want to be a fireman. One day I want to be, uh, you know, missionary, pastor. All these imaginations that we have in our mind, and they're unfiltered, which is the great thing about kids. If you work in uh, children's ministry here, you get to hear some amazing things, and you get to hear the things that their little hearts conjure up that God has put in their heart and the desires of the things that they want to be. And you see, those desires for us, I don't think they ever go away. I mean, many people spend the rest of their life searching for satisfaction and purpose and meaning. Right? They, they spend most of their life looking for the things that they dreamed or fancied as a child. But unfortunately, as we have these imaginations as children, we, we grow up and they turn into distant memories and the re- reality of responsibility hits us square in the face. For some, earlier than others, uh, but only a few people actually end up chasing their dreams and the rest settle for a job that will simply pay the bills. Would you agree with that? That's, that's pretty normal of our society today. As a matter of fact, if you look at statistics of people who have gotten degrees and then the field in which uh, they work, those two are not the same oftentimes. And so a lot of people end up in jobs that they don't like and they think that what they do doesn't really matter, that it just pays the bills. As a matter of fact, I had a conversation just this week with someone who said, look, I know they were talking about their job. I know what I do doesn't matter, but, and so they, I thought, well, you know, you have no idea what we're going to talk about today. So what ends up happening is most people create two versions of themselves. You create a work version where you have your work self, and then you create a church version of yourself. And this is often referred to as the spiritual and the secular. I mentioned I work in, uh, you know, in the professional world. I'm a financial advisor and have been for several years. And so I often, you know, when people say, hey, what do you do? And I say, well, you know, I'm a pastor and I'm a financial advisor. And they say, oh, well, that's your secular job. You've heard that before, secular. Secular's terminology means worldly terminology. Well, it's only worldly if that's the way that you treat it, right? And so oftentimes we separate those two and we say, well, this is the spiritual, and then we have the secular, again, as the world terms it. It it may not be conscious that people do this or maybe not even intentional, but what happens is people compartmentalize the church version of themselves and the work version of themselves. I guess a good question here would be to ask, are you the same person at work as you are at church? You see, people have separated in their minds what they believe to be the difference between the spiritual and the worldly or the secular. After all, if you study history, you'll remember in 1802, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to a group of Baptists, and in the letter he talked about the separation of church and state. And so we've even made it this legalized terminology that we separate the church, from everything else that we do. But the question is, is that what God intended? Well, today, hopefully, you'll walk away with the answer to that question. You see, A.W. Tozier says, this should come up on the screen, one of the greatest hindrances to eternal peace is the habit of dividing our lives into two areas, the sacred and the secular. Now, there's a really important part of that if you, if you just think for a second and read that. It says, one of the greatest hindrances to 
Not your life, not your profession, not your income, not your walk with God, but with your eternal peace. And therein lies the solution to our problems. Is that there are many people that every single day live with the internal angst of the spiritual versus, again, secular for the sake of our conversation. And there is no peace in what they are doing or attempting to accomplish. You see, this has created a struggle in the hearts of many minds of people as they struggle with what Pastor Tony talked about a few weeks ago, the difference with assimilation and separation and engagement. And so what most people do is they assimilate into their environment, and they become whatever their environment is, good, bad, or indifferent. Or they separate, and they say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to associate or have anything to do with anything that doesn't have to do with the church. And so then there's this extreme separation, which is not the correct answer either. And so some people then have simply decided to believe that anything that is done outside of the church is insignificant. So let's look at some statistics this morning as we look at the resilient versus the rest. The first statistic is I want others to see Jesus reflected in me through my words and my actions. So is that, is that something that you leave out of here? You know, Philip prayed a second ago that the gospel would, would go outside of the four walls of this church. We're going to talk about that today. But that's what Philip prayed right before the offering, that the gospel would go outside of the four walls. Well, the question was, do you want others to see Jesus reflected in you through your words and actions? 90% of resilience said yes. 90% said that everything that I do, I want others to see Jesus reflected in what I say and in what I do. Now, that's all across the board. What I do is everything. How many do you think habitual churchgoers who consistently show up at church, how many of them would say that I want Jesus to be reflected in all my words and actions? Well, the answer is only 50%. Only half of the church says I want people to know that I follow Jesus. Now, what did Pastor Tony say last week? That the gospel is like a light. A, a lamp, and that if we set the lamp, it's supposed to be a light on a hill, but yet if we set it under a bush, right, then how will the world know? But yet only half the church has decided that they should let everyone know that they follow Jesus. Number two, <clears throat> I personally have a responsibility to tell others about my beliefs. Personal responsibility to share your faith. 76% of resilience says, Absolutely. I, I feel very burdened to communicate what God has done in my life to people that are around me. Whereas only 34% of habitual churchgoers are compelled to share their faith. 34%. That's those who profess the name of Jesus. Only 34% of those who profess the name of Jesus. What about those who are indifferent? Number three, I am excited about the mission of the church in today's world. I am excited about what the church is doing. Are you excited about what God is doing in your church, in, in, in the kingdom church, in the community, the body of believers in this area? Well, 67% of resilience said they're excited about what God is doing through the local body, but only 32% 
of habitual churchgoers are excited. That may have something to do with the fact that something may be happening at their church that they don't like. And so it's hard to be excited about something that you don't like. Number four, a major part of my purpose is to serve others. A major part of my purpose is to serve others. We would, as churchgoers, we would agree with that. 66% of habitual churchgoers said absolutely. Two-thirds says it's my job to serve other people, yet only 35% of habitual churchgoers said it's their purpose to serve others. Now, I've been to a lot of churches, and I've seen a lot of situations, and the church does not exist to serve you. The church does not exist to serve me. And somewhere along the lines, we have believed that this is all about me, and it's not. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's always been about Jesus, and it always will be about Jesus. And that's the problem where we get with habitual churchgoers is that they come consistently to where they begin to take ownership of the church, whereas it was never theirs to own. And then they began to impose their desires and their ideologies on God's church. Whereas those that are consistently walking with Jesus and replicating their faith, they're not concerned with getting their way. They're only concerned with Jesus getting His way. Amen? You see, those people that separate, they equate significance and doing something for God. So they say, the only way I can be significant is if I do something in the ministry for God, and they define that by a career in the ministry. I know my whole life growing up, you know, if you, if you didn't go full-time in ministry, well, then you weren't fully surrendered to God. I mean, that was just the way it was for me. So here's the question. What if that's not true? What if it's not true? Have you ever considered the fact that God gave you the gift and ability to do what it is that you do, whatever that is? Have you ever considered that God put you exactly where He wanted you to be? If you look in the bulletin today, you'll see that the title of the message is Bloom Where You're Planted. So you can imagine where we're going with this, right? Bloom Where You're Planted. What if God put you exactly where He wants you to be. Have you ever considered that if God wanted you to be a pastor or a missionary, that He would have gifted you and He would have called you to do that? Now, certainly, there are certainly possibly some of you in the room that God has called to do that, and you haven't, you haven't surrendered to that. That is always a possibility. But God didn't call all 500 of us to be pastors, Right? So have you ever considered that whatever you're doing, that is what God called you to do? Have you ever considered that where you are is exactly where God gifted you and called you to be? When I was growing up, I was captivated by numbers. I, I could memorize numbers and, you know, look at numbers and I could instantly remember them. You know, whatever the number was, I can remember going to the doctor's office when I was a child, and I could remember, I have three siblings, I could remember not only my ID information, but all of their ID information. And so my mom would give it to me and say, hey, we're going to need this in a, lo- a little while, remember it. And so I would memorize all of the numbers. And so we'd get up to the doctor's, uh, you know, counter, and they'd say, hey, you know, this information, and boom, I'd rattle it off. 
Little did I know that several years later, God would open the door and I would be a financial advisor and that I would deal with numbers all day long. For the last several years, I've done that, and I love doing it. And so God has taken something that as a child I had the ability to do, and He's utilizing that. Now, you know, we can, you know, we're not here today to talk about me and, and my career, but think about what most people idolize in their life money. And what an impact and opportunity that I have to influence that for the kingdom of God. So the question is what is it that God has gifted you and called you to do? Now, I left the slide the same for Pastor Tony's sake, uh, but the next slide is Johnny, Kevin, somebody. All right, well, maybe not, so rewind. They already know the answer. Realism plus hope equals resilience. You should already have that filled in. Realism plus hope. And then I left what Pastor Tony had up there. Stop looking. You should know this by now. And so we're talking about realism today, right? We're talking about things that are real. Tomorrow morning, the clock's going to go off. And you're going to get up and you're going to go to a job. I'm going to a job. It is real life, right? And so as we talk about reality... And then we talk about the hope of the gospel. That's where we merge into resilient. And so as we talk about this realism that God has called us to be a part of because of the hope that we have in Jesus. And so the fifth characteristic of a resilient Christian is what is called vocational discipleship. Vocational discipleship. Now what this means is knowing and living God's calling and right-sizing our ambitions to God's purposes. So it is knowing what God has called us to do and right-sizing our ambitions to His purposes. So remember as a child, we had all these vivid imaginations of what God would call us to do and the places that He would allow us to go. And what we as believers then is God has merged the ambitions and the desires that He has put inside of us and He placed the Spirit of God inside of us and He is using those talents and abilities that He equipped us with to accomplish His mission. That's what vocational discipleship means. You see, resilience say that Christians are called to do their work with integrity, no matter the type of work. I remember years ago, I had a landscaping foreman's job, and so I was uh, leading a crew, and so we were out working, and one of the workers was complaining because he was only making $9 an hour, and he said, you know, I tell you what, when we show up to this job, he said, I'm only doing a $9 an hour job because that's what they're paying me. And my response was, and you'll never make more than $9 an hour as long as you do a $9 an hour job. You want $10 an hour? Then you should do a $10 an hour job. You want $11 an hour? You should do an $11 an hour job. You see, when, when we talk about having integrity, it doesn't matter what we're doing. We represent the kingdom before we represent the company. And so when we stand before God, we're going to give an answer for the integrity that we possess or the lack thereof in whatever it is that you find yourself doing. You see, unfortunately, only half of habitual churchgoers agree that they should do their work with integrity, which is why we find ourselves in the situation that we're in today in our world. Look around. 
Most churches believe that it's a holy huddle and that they should come in and unlike Philip prayed that they should not go outside the four walls of the church, but they should separate themselves and be separate from the world and not to take the gospel to the world. How will they be influenced if we don't? But only half of churchgoers, habitual churchgoers, agree that they should do their work with integrity. Resilience say that they do not have to work, quote, in ministry to be working in God's kingdom. That they don't have to have a title in order to accomplish God's mission. Luther declared that the epic battle of the universe was being fought not in uh, opulent church buildings of the 16th century Europe, but in the context of of everyday, grueling, peasant toll, his words. He goes on to say that the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, they do not differ one bit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman woman going about her household task. But all works are measured before God by faith alone. And so we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 6. We all know the story of Daniel. The last several weeks we've been studying Daniel. Here's what Daniel chapter 6 says. We read the same scripture last week. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the entire kingdom or the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps would give an account. So that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps. Because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault. Because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Daniel was not perfect. Daniel was faithful. Daniel was not in full-time ministry, which there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not pitting one against the other. But what I'm getting to is that Daniel was not in full-time ministry, and yet Daniel was faithfully executing his job as a high official. Daniel had integrity. The Bible says there was an excellent spirit in him and that he was faithful. Daniel was faithful. Last week, Pastor Tony asked the question, he said, uh, about Christians being different in the world, and how do you identify the difference of believers in the world versus unbelievers? And he said, it is not those who use clean language. It is not those who go to clean movies. You remember that last week? And so the question is, well, then what are the distinguishing marks of someone who is different? Have you thought about that this week? I have. Have you thought about what it means to be different in a world that is as chaotic as it is today? Well, if it's not the actions per se, well, then what is it? Well, I want to give you three things that I think that could certainly summarize all of what it could be. Number one is it's your attitude. When you show up at work, what kind of attitude do you carry with you? If you show up and you're complaining just like everybody else is, If you show up and you are doing the same things that everybody else is doing and your attitude is bad, well, how are you different? This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. That's what Scripture says. So our attitude ought to be different than the unbeliever. 
But unfortunately, the world today sees it exactly the same because we just fall right in line and we just do whatever everybody else is doing. So not only is it attitude, but how about outlook? I mean, every one of us have careers where things change. You know, if you're a teacher, who was excited about Common Core? Right? Nobody. All right, so, you know, I work in the financial world. There's always regulations changing. Something changes almost every day in my job. Same thing for you, whatever it is that you do. I mean, think about how long it's taken us to complete the e-sanctuary. Think about all the things that have changed from when we started to when we finished from a regulation perspective. So it's our outlook and how we see things. Do you have a positive outlook? Will it all be okay at the end? It may not, I'm not saying think, nothing, bad things don't happen. Certainly things happen that are uncomfortable or we don't agree with or whatever. That's fine. I know that happens. But how we perceive the future of that action is really what we're communicating to those around us. How do I see the future? Do I live with the future of hope and expectation or doom and gloom? So our attitude, our outlook, and number three, our reaction. Your difference should be exemplified in your attitude. It should be exemplified in your outlook. And it should be exemplified in your reaction to things that happen around you. When bad things happen, when it doesn't go in your favor, how do you respond? Well, in the church, what people do is they change churches. Or they, res- uh, they respond by complaining. What do you do? Attitude, outlook, reaction. That's the difference maker of someone who is a resilient follower of Jesus. You see, it's not just ministers or missionaries who are called to be faithful and to possess the Spirit of God. It is every believer, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23, says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. If you are a child of God in here today, the spirit of God is inside of you. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. All things have passed away. All things become new. Ezekiel says that God puts a new heart inside of you. And so if you are a child of God in here today, no matter what your hands find themselves doing, you are are a personal resident of the Spirit of God, and you are a representative of that. In the Old Testament, we read about a guy named Job who suffered horrific pain and loss under direct satanic attack. But Job was not a prophet. Job was not a preacher or a priest or a missionary. Rather, Job was a very successful businessman. The Bible says that Job, the businessman, was blameless and upright and one who feared God. That's what we need in our world today. Pastor Tony said it before. We need Christians in Washington. We need Christians in the law field. We need Christians at the hospital. Amen? We need believers out in the landscaping crew. All right, we need believers everywhere. That's the gospel, is that the gospel would go to the uttermost parts of the earth. We just finished Acts. In Hebrews 11, we read about 16 heroes of the faith in what is known as the hall of faith. Now, anybody could have been listed there. 
And if you made the list, it might be different than what you read in Hebrews chapter 11. Of the 16 that are listed, only one of them is in what would be considered the ministry. The rest were business people, government officials, military leaders with the exception of Samson and Rahab. Only one. So, therefore, what that should tell us is that our faith ought to be an everyday part of our life. As I was preparing for this and thinking about the message, I thought about Luke 9.23. You should write that down and go home and think about that for a while. Luke 9.23. Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily. Take up his cross daily. Not weekly, daily. You see, our faith ought to be a daily part of everything that we do. And so I think in order to accomplish this, I want to help you by redefining a few terms that are often tossed around in our world today, especially when it comes to work. So we're going to redefine three terms this morning. The first thing that we're going to look at is success. Success is measured by your influence. It is not measured by your accolades. Because at the end of the day, the way that we came into the world is the way that we will leave with nothing. So success is measured by your influence. So here's the question this morning. What is your influence? Who do you influence? You see, Daniel became one of the most successful people in the Babylonian kingdom. How did he do that? By living his faith and gaining influence. Daniel had great influence, so much so that he became one of the top three guys in the land because of his influence, not because of his assimilation. We, we, we read Daniel 1, Daniel didn't assimilate. But yet Daniel was faithful to what God called him to do. And even as you read later on in chapter 6, he knew that that decree had been set forth. And yet, what did he do? Knowing the document had been signed, the Scripture says, he still yet continued to worship. Right? Isn't that what the Bible says? So Daniel became one of the most successful people in Babylon because of influence. So how we define success will actually determine whether or not we achieve it. So here's the question. What would you define success as in your job? What is success? Is it being the boss? Is it making the most? Is it working the least? I mean, what would you say success is? You see, success follows a predictable course. It is not always the brightest who succeed, nor is success simply the sum of the decisions or the efforts that we make on our behalf. Might I suggest to you this morning that success is rather a gift. How do you think Daniel became the top three in the land? It was because of the influence and the favor that God gave him. So when we talk about success and we have the imaginations of all the things that we imagine that we would be one day, all the places that we would go, here's the question. Could we really be anything that we wanted to be? I would suggest this morning that we can't be anything that we want to be. As I thought about this, I thought there was never a chance that Ricky Naramore was going to play in the NBA. That was never going to happen. No offense, Ricky. 
right? I mean, it's just not going to happen. There's things that are just not going to happen, right? We can't be whatever we want to be. That's just not how this works. We can, however, however, be exactly what God made us to be, right? There's something that God made you specifically to be. And when you were born apart from Christ, Romans 5, 1, and you grew up in sin, and then you were, uh, you were intersected with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God radically saved you and redeemed you and forgave you of your sins, guess what he did? He put a new heart in you. And the Bible tells us in many places, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Trust not in your own understanding. In his heart a man plans his steps, but it's the Lord who directs his path. Many, 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 many places the Bible talks about God directing you where he wants you to go. This is not about you and I imagining what would be best for our life, but it's about us accomplishing what God created to be best for our life. Rick Warren, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life, the second most sold book ever, writes, God, before God created you, he decided what role he wanted you to play on earth. He planned exactly how he wanted you to serve him, and then he shaped you for those tasks. Have you ever dreamed that you were someone else? You know, in the 90s when I grew up, sometimes I dreamed that he is me, like Mike, if I could be like Mike, Michael Jordan, you know, the big Wheaties commercial. We all have these imaginations of who we ought to be. But what if, what if we decided today that I'm exactly who God made me to be? That everything about me is exactly the way that God wanted it to be? You see, my vocation, my life, my existence, all of these are astonishing, undeserved gifts that God has given me, that God has given you. And so instead of using these gifts as a means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, what if we took the time to live inside of these gifts that God has given us and see the hand of God at work inside of them? What has God gifted you to do that you could use for the kingdom of God? If you'll remember back to our Ecclesiastes series, This question just over and over and over rattled in my brain. Pastor Tony and I talked about this over and over and over. What if our work was never intended to make us successful? But what if our work was simply intended to make us faithful and generous? You're more faithful to your job than anything else in your life. You won't be late for work, but you'll be late for church or baseball or whatever it is that you do. But you won't be late for work. You spend more time, I spend more time at work than any other activity in our entire life. What if, what if God created work to teach us faithfulness? You're more generous with your time to work than anything else that you do. You spend more time doing that, again, than anything. So what if God is using it to teach you generosity? What a great question. You see, all of the things that God has put in our life are used for influence. That God has put us there to shape eternity. You see, you and I exist in places of influence, but you exist in different places than I exist. I mean, there's people that your work... That I mean, I was just having a conversation about how some people, you know, I mean, 
pastors can tell you this all the time. I remember we lived in Virginia. We went to, uh, I joined a gym. And when people would ask me, you know, hey, I'm new to town. Oh, great. Well, what do you do? I speak for a living. Because if I say I'm a pastor, I'm going to get the pastor version of that person. I'm not getting, I don't have the influence over people that you have influence over. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Pastor Tony can go somewhere. It's the same thing. Pastor Brian, it doesn't matter where you, when the pastor shows up, everything's different. There's influence that you have with people that would never speak to a pastor simply because of title alone that you have an opportunity to reach for the gospel. How are those people ever going to know about Jesus? Why do you think God put you in that place? You see, your influence is places that your pastor will never affect. Do you base the success of your position on what is accomplished? Or do you base the success of your position on how much you influence it for the kingdom of God? Is your workplace a better place because you know Jesus? Remember, Daniel was successful, but it's because he was faithful. So not only success is measured by influence, number two, satisfaction is measured by our best, not the best. Satisfaction is measured by our best, not the best. You see, Daniel determined in his heart, read chapter 1, that he was not going to do what the Babylonians determined what was best for him. Right? Isn't that what we read? That the Babylonians said, hey, here's what you're going to eat, here's what you're going to drink. And Daniel said, I have an idea. What if I don't? What if I give you God's best and I don't use what you determined to be the best for me? Isn't that what Daniel did? And so he based it on his conviction of giving God his best. Now here's the deal. I know we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but a lot of people don't share their faith with their coworkers because they're not giving their best to their coworkers. Most people are doing just enough to get by. That's not integrity. And so we talk about satisfaction. Most people aren't satisfied in their job. Why are they not satisfied? Because they're not giving their best to their job. And you're never going to be satisfied with something that you're not giving your best to. Yet when Jesus was on the cross and his last words were, it is finished, when God was creating the universe and the cosmos and you and me, and he said, it is good, there was satisfaction in that because he gave his best, right? And so for you and I, when we talk about our integrity at work and the way that we act and the way that we accomplish the things that God has set before us, we ought to be the very best at those things for the kingdom of God, not based on the world's measurement of that. So we ought to give the very best that we can give. Now, that may not be better than somebody else. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying your best. You see, Daniel was not dependent on what Babylon said was best. And your standard, guess what? You and I, we're not the standard. Jesus is. So when you show up to work, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond to this? Would Jesus change the time card? Would Jesus do as little to get by as possible? No, he wouldn't. Jesus gave his best, so why do we think that we can give less than that? You see, to have true satisfaction is to to leave each day with the accomplishment of knowing, I gave my best today. Ordinarily, people work not just to earn a living, but a lot of people try to find satisfaction and purpose in their jobs. 
And most people live in a dissatisfied state when it comes to their jobs. But here is the question. Was there another choice? Was there another choice? Think about it. How many astronauts do you know? How many of you know someone personally who plays in the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball? Few, if any, right? How many of you are CEOs of a Fortune 500 company? Not many, few, if any. Well, if that's the bar, we failed, right? If that's the peak of social status, then none of us have achieved that. Is it possible that the mundane jobs that we so often complain about are exactly the places that God created us to be? Is that possible? You see, what happens is the lie of vocational guilt whispers what you do determines your significance. That if you're not the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, if you're not a professional athlete, if you are not the manager or the leader, well then, Whatever you do will determine your significance. But God doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, God says, what my son did on the cross determines your significance. Didn't we just sing, I am who you say I am? Right? Our identity is based on what God says our identity is. And so lasting satisfaction only comes from resting in who you are, not in what you do. You see, what you do can change. If you look at the statistics today, uh, uh, individuals change employers more than ever before. So what you do can and will change, but who you are will never change. Who you are is, is from one job to the next, whatever it is that you may find yourself doing. And so what if we applied our spiritual identity to Christ and how we approach every day? What would that look like if every day... We went to work, we attempted to find, we set out to accomplish and find satisfaction in Jesus through our work. Hear me out here. Imagine going to the grocery store with the mindset that you are representing the kingdom of God in this moment. And this may be the only exposure to the kingdom that those people get today. What if we did that? What if every day you went to the office that you went with the goal of intently looking for where and what situations that you could see God working in? And once you discovered it, you joined Him. How much more enjoyable do you think work would be? You see, God has given you a a gift. God has given me a gift. And we have to work as though it is a gift. A gift created by God to accomplish his mission on earth. God has gifted you, God has granted you the opportunity to do what it is that you find yourself doing. Read with me in Genesis chapter 1. The Bible says God blessed them and God said to them, verse 28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave Adam and Eve, or humanity, dominion. And he gave them the opportunity to subdue the earth. Your enemy is not the earth. Your enemy is not your employer. The enemy, the Bible says, is uh, seeking uh, like a roaring lion, lion who he may devour. Your enemy is the devil. 
And he's going to do anything that he can to reduce your reputation, to mess up uh, any type of opportunities that are before you. He's going to do anything that he can to try to trip you up. Your enemy is not work. Work was created before sin entered into the world. This is Genesis 1. Sin came in Genesis 3. And so our vocation is not something that we look at and say, oh, this is something that I have to do. No, this is something you get to do. That God made you uh, to have dominion over the earth. That he gave you the opportunity to subdue it. And so when we find satisfaction in in the work that God has given us, we find satisfaction in him. Our satisfaction comes by being obedient to what God has put in front of us. You see, there's a story in 1 Samuel, and there's an interaction between Saul and Samuel. And Saul had uh, partially done what he was commanded to do, and then he took it into his own hands to do the rest. And Samuel shows up and said, hey, what did you do? You're, You're not supposed to do that. That's my task. You're not a priest. And Saul said, you know, he starts making excuses. Oh, well, you know, I was trying to figure out what to do, and so I just decided to do it myself. And this is what Samuel said. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Samuel said, listen, it's not in what you're doing. It's in your obedience to Jesus that matters. You see, God, according to John Piper, is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. And we've got too many Christians running around grumbling, complaining about their jobs, not giving their best, not satisfied with where God has put them, because they think they know better. Again, what if, what if God put you exactly where He wanted you to be? If we could grasp that, I think satisfaction would follow. So success is our influence. Satisfaction is our best, not the best. And number three, what about significance? Significance. Significance is measured by what you pass on. Now, here's where we might step on a few toes, right? Significance is what you pass on. So what is it that you... If you were to die today, what is it that you passed on? What is it that you poured into someone else? What is it that someone learned from you because you took the time to teach them? Here are some questions for you to think about. Can anyone name the Super Bowl champion in 2010? Seriously, if you can name it, say it. 2010. How about who won the World Series in 2005? Does anybody remember who won a Grammy Award in 2012? No. Who invented the light bulb? All right, that was fast. Who flew the first airplane? Right, brothers? Who taught you how to ride a bicycle? Raise your hand if you know that answer. Most people are the same as bicycle. How about who taught you how to tie your shoe? If you know the answer to that, raise your hand. About the same as bicycles. Who introduced you to Jesus? Raise your hand if you know who did that. All right, so a lot of people. Do you notice the difference in those questions? 
who won the World Series, who was the Super Bowl champion, who won a Grammy, all the things that the world says are important. Nobody remembers those. Those were let, I asked the question 10 and 8 years ago. Ten, you can't remember what happened 10 years ago? 8 years ago? You know why? You know why? Because it didn't impact you. You can't remember those things because it doesn't have anything to do with you. None of you played in those games. If you played in it, you'd remember. None of you remember that because you didn't, it didn't impact you. But who taught you how to ride a bike impacts you. Who taught you how to tie your shoe? Well, that's a life skill. That impacts you. Who mentored you? Right? You hear stories all the time about uh, discipleship. And you hear how uh, certain people were discipled. And you, you hear conversations of, well, this person poured into me. This person told me what it was like to follow Jesus. I had a conversation just this week about somebody who talked about a pastor who spent time with him and who poured into his life and who influenced him. You see, significance is based upon what you pass on. It's based on your influence from success. You see all these tie together? And when we talk about who introduced us to Jesus, we're not going to forget that. Why not? Because that has eternal implications. Because it impacted you in a way that will last forever. You see, significance is really, truly only what you pass on. It is only what is passed on that is remembered. You want to leave your mark on this world? Well, Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me... He must deny himself, take up his cross daily. And then he encountered the rich young ruler. And this is what the rich young ruler said. Jesus, I've been obedient. You say, okay, well, I'm trying to, I'm coming to church. I'm a habitual churchgoer. And the rich young ruler says, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And he said, check what you got next. And Jesus said, go sell everything you have, the word A-L-L, all of it, give to the poor, and then follow me. And he walked away because he was sad. Why was that? Because he wasn't willing to give all of what he had to Jesus. Which is the world in which we live today. Is that Jesus is an add-on. He is an option. Right? That you get a little Jesus, stick him in your pocket, a little fire insurance, a little eternity insurance. Stick him in your pocket, live how you want six days a week. Show up on Sunday, check the compartmentalized spiritual box, and never pass anything on. That's not Christianity, that's not discipleship, that's not multiplying. You've erased the first five gospels, uh, the first five books of the New Testament. That is not living for Jesus. Significance is only what you pass on. And millions and millions and millions, if not billions of people, will leave this world and they will not be remembered. Because they never planted their life in the one that will only be remembered, and his name is Jesus. You're trying to build a name for yourself. You're trying to get accolades for yourself. You're keeping everything to yourself, up to and including spiritual things. We've got people in our church that have been a part of the same group for three and four years. We've done D groups for four years. We've got some groups that have been together for four years that is not significance. That is not passing on your legacy of how God changed you. That is not exemplifying what it means to pour yourself into someone because Jesus did that for you. That is not Christianity. That is your definition of it. And if you live on your own island, you can define your own terms. But Jesus has the ultimate say. 
Significance is all about what you give to the next generation. I thought of so many ways to communicate this today. Pastor Brian, I thought, okay, if you're willing, if you're willing to pour your life into a student, would you stand up? I'm not asking you to do that, but I thought about this. I thought about, well, what if you're a student and you say, well, I want to be mentored. I want someone to pour into me. Would you come down front? I thought about, you know what, all of us need to be mentored because here's the deal. I thought about saying, well, if you're 50 or older, would you come down front if you're willing to pour into the next generation? And then I thought to myself, not everybody over 50 needs to be pouring into the next generation. Just like Pastor Tony said a few weeks ago, age doesn't equal wisdom. What equals wisdom is spending time with Jesus. It means passing on. It means giving beyond yourself. Now, don't get me wrong. There's hundreds of people in this church who do that. I'm the only one, you know, me and Pastor Tony, we're the only ones who know all of the stories of discipleship groups, all of the things that God is doing and how God is multiplying the faith, His faith inside of all those groups, how God is moving, how God is shaping you see, if you notice, not a single one of you have been placed in a discipleship group because that's not what discipleship is. You get in a discipleship group because you want to be in a discipleship group. It's not because I want you to be in one. You see, every one of us inside has this inner desire to be a part of something that matters, something bigger than life. And you know, that desire is not all bad. God God is the only one who can, dis, uh, who can satisfy this desire, this yearning to be discovered and to be valued. God put this desire inside of us to be part of something that's greater than ourselves. Ecclesiastes says he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The desire to have significance is a God-given desire. The desire to pass on something is a God-given desire. Our desire for significance is a desire to be known and to be valued, but to be known and to be valued by God. You see, buried in the heart of each person's decision to be known, to do what God has called them to do, to bloom where they're planted, inside of, at the core of every one of us, the question of our eternal destiny is at stake. And the ultimate question that you and I will answer is this. Do you trust God? Because, see, if you trust Him, then you'll live satisfied where He has you. That you'll seek to be significant by passing on the faith that God has entrusted to you. Do you trust that God is working even when you don't see Him working? Do you trust God that the job He has put you in is meant for you to display His glory? The biography that God is writing of your life and my life, do you trust Him for that? You see, God didn't make us to be consumers. God made us to be creators. Because we're made in the image of God, the Creator. And so as we look at work as an opportunity to pass on the significant faith that God has put inside of us, 
I want to give you two takeaways as we close this morning. Two encouragements, if you will, two ways to think about this as you move forward on Monday morning. Number one is your job shapes human lives, your job shapes your life, and your job shapes other people's lives. Your job matters. Every second of our lives, every experience, every labor, small or great, it shapes who we are and who we will always be. God is shaping you into who He wants you to be. There's a divine story of your life that only you can tell because God has given you a life that is like no one else's. If it's just like somebody else's, there would only be one of you. God wouldn't have created you if He didn't have a plan for you. Your life and the sum of all parts of it God is shaping you and others through that. And number two, our labor today determines the rewards that we will enjoy and steward on the new earth for all eternity. Think about it. Think about how we think about death. I thought this week, you know, we, we all have people that have passed away close to us. And oftentimes, you, you know, I've, you know, preached funerals and, you know, you, you're around all these conversations. And here's what people say. Oh, they're in a better place. Well, God needed them in heaven. You know, so many things people say. And so what, what, what happens subconsciously in our minds is we think, well, we're not supposed to be here on earth. That this is just a waiting period that we're in, and then God's going to call us home. And so none of this really matters. Subconsciously, humans think that. Why do you think you're still living? There's a purpose that God created you for. Why do you think God created, I thought about this all week, why do you think God created the earth? You, th you think it's just this holding spot that God has us until He can clean us up and get us where He wants us to be and then call us to heaven? We're not going to get into eschatology today, but when you think about, think about how everything is designed, okay? You know, regardless of your belief, I'm going to give you some general things here, okay? So, there's going to be the, the rapture. There's going to be the seven years tribulation. There's going to be the second coming of Jesus. And then what's next? Millennium, right? There's going to be a thousand year literal reign of Jesus on earth. On earth. Okay, so think about this. Why do you think God has us here? Well, it's because He has a plan. It's because He has a purpose. It's because our labor and the things that we do, one day we'll stand before God. And we've been stewards of the things that God has given us. Listen, if God wanted you to be in heaven right now, you'd be there. But you're not. You're here. And I'm here. And so God has something for you to do here. One day we'll stand before God and there'll be things that God has in store for us there. But for the time being, bloom where you're planted. Do what God has called you to do. Of 2 Peter 3.13, according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
Ephesians 6, 8 says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. And this is another way of God just saying that only rewards, God only rewards labor that is done to the glory of God. And so all the things that you do, all the sum of the things that we find ourselves a part of are all done to the glory of God because one day we will stand before God. The Bible describes eternal rewards not simply as treasures but as positions of authority. It speaks of us ruling over cities and judging angels and wearing crowns and reigning with Christ. The master said to his servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. What you do matters today and for eternity. And so what we need to do is we need to go about all the things that we already do, but we need to do them in faith for the glory of God, and for the good of others. We need to do what we're already doing, but we need to do it in faith. You need to show up tomorrow. You need to pray today, God, tomorrow I want to be different. God, tomorrow when I show up at work, I want to have an impact for your kingdom. God, when I go to my small group, I want to have a conversation about ways that I can get out of this rut that I'm in and actually pass on what you're doing in my life. I want to have significance for the kingdom. I want it to matter. I want my life to leave a mark for Jesus. Ecclesiastes 2.24 says, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toll. This also I saw is from the hand of God. God has given you a task. God has planted you here for a reason. Where you are, might I suggest this morning, is exactly where God knew you would be. And yet He works all of it according to His plan for His glory. So would you show up tomorrow? Would you go to work this next week with the resolution in your heart that you're just going to bloom where you're planted? That vocational discipleship is not just having faith on Sunday. It is not compartmentalizing your church self from your work self. But it is saying that I am a child of God on Sunday just as much as I am on Wednesday or Friday night or Monday morning, right? Bloom where you're planted. What our world desperately needs is someone to be who they say they are. DC Talk had a song years ago. And they said, the fact that people show up on Sunday and proclaim Jesus and walk out and their lifestyle is completely opposite is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. Don't let that be you. Bloom where you're planted. 